It's a good thing my kids were not here this morning because as soon as I saw that axe throwing, oh man, I would never hear the end of this. There's something about children and lethal weapons. I don't know. <laughs> They'd be like, I've never done that. I... All right. Um, yeah, oh yeah. It's just how it is. Um, so we go till uh, what? 10, 10, 15 about? 10, 15. All right. I'll try to stop around 10, 15. Um, I have this really bad habit of going long, but um, that's okay. So I don't know. I was here a few months ago, I guess, maybe a little longer than that. And I, I did a presentation with you on the history of American Lutheranism. But I got to tell you, I couldn't remember where I stopped, <laughs> right? Did I, I stopped where? Oh, okay, well, so, yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll do the early history of the Missouri Synod, right, um, which is kind of interesting. I, have any of you ever learned about the formation of the Missouri Synod, like how it kind of came together? Maybe a long time ago or something like that? Sure. Um, it is, it is an unusual history, um, that I think is one is helpful for us uh, to remember. And also one that's a little bit humbling um, as we sort of reflect on how we got to where we are today. So you'll probably remember from last time, you know, we had talked about how a lot of the Lutherans who came over, a lot of them were kind of pietists early on, the Swedes, the Dutch. Um, you, you have a lot of um, prominent Lutherans prior to, um, really the, the rise of the Missouri Synod, who are just not very Lutheran, right? Um, so anyhow, what, what ends up happening is you have a particular group um, at, the, at the middle of kind of the, the 19th century that immigrates, that will really fundamentally change um, sort of the dynamic and the history of Lutheranism um, as we've kind of come to experience it today. And for those of you who don't know, the, the most important person in this is a guy named C.F.W. Walther. He ends up becoming the first president in the Missouri Synod, um, but he's not really the one who actually starts all this. So um, Walther himself is born in 1811. Uh, he's kind of born into a clergy family. A lot of times that's how it was. You know, whatever your parents sort of did, that's kind of what you did too, you know, at that time in life. Um, He's, he's fortunate, though, because he's, he's able to go to a number of schools, um, you know, as a boy, he attends the gymnasium, ends up going to the University of Leipzig, and um, while he's there, he joins this thing called the Holiness Club, and you'll remember from our discussion, if you can, you know, sort of draw on that, I don't know, it was a while back, um, one of the movements at this time is called Pietism. The, the pietism movement was basically one that emphasized, or I should say, it de-emphasized in many ways the, the teachings of Christ, the confession of the faith, and, and chose to emphasize instead of that the experience of oneself as a Christian, okay? And, and especially the demonstration of like how good of a Christian you are in terms of what you're doing. Well, obviously that's gonna have a lot of problems, right? Because if, if you're not really focusing on the teachings of Christ, right? 
well, then how do you sort of define what constitutes the good Christian life and so forth? And, and it kind of devolves into this um, situation where you, you, you basically have a lot of people um, who sort of define for themselves what they think it means to truly be Christian. Okay? And that goes in a lot of different directions. Um, the reason he kind of joins this club is because his mother was actually a really pious person, right? She was herself was kind of a pietist. Uh, his father, though, was more of a rationalist. So in the 16th century, you basically have like the confessional Lutherans, right? Um, this, in turn, the response to this was the rise of pietism. Um, and then in response to pietism, you have rationalism, which sort of rejected, you know, a lot of the Christian teaching and, and basically just says, you know, the mind is good enough. That's sort of all we need and so on and so forth. So he's got this dynamic within his own household, whereas his mom's kind of a pietist. His dad's sort of a rationalist. You know, and then you just sort of grow up confused, okay, about, well, <laughs> what do I do with all this? Um, but he was really influenced by his mother. He joins this group. Um, and, and Walther himself is really concerned about being a pious Christian, okay? Um, the, the club itself, you know, had this goal of sort of fulfilling the word of God and, you know, these sort of things. And, and they, they, they did emphasize like the devotional life. Um, but the, the problem is if, if everything that you're focused on is about how you're living your life and the best Christian that you can be, you know, you're going to end up in sort of two problems with that. The one is you're either going to think you're way better than you are. <laughs> Okay, which is problematic, or you're going to realize you're, you're really not that great. And unfortunately for Walther, you know, for him, he's, he just realized, like, he really wasn't as great of a Christian as he wanted to be. And no matter how hard he tried, you know, he's a sinner. Okay, now, to us, this is like Lutheranism, right? Like, I, if I try to be perfect, I'm not going to be perfect, right? And this is where Jesus comes in. But the problem was, at that time in Germany, there wasn't a lot of preaching of the gospel. I mean, they were either all pietists, they were rationalists. There were very few people, like pastors, who were actually teaching about the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And because of this, <coughs> Walther himself, I mean, he, he kind of develops, like, some problems, like, just in his mind, he can't reconcile what he thinks a Christian is supposed to be with who he actually is, and it leads him into severe depression. Because what's, what's the solution at that point? If nobody holds Christ before your eyes, where are you ever going to find comfort? And, and he can't. Um, he ends up actually having to move home. It gets so bad, right? He just, he just kind of can't live with himself. And while he's there... Um, you know, they kind of had this family library, right? And he ends up reading um, a lot of Luther to try and figure out, like, like what is going on? Why am I having these theological problems? Um, and that's sort of the beginning for him of, of understanding that there is this thing really called the gospel. And the gospel isn't what we do. The gospel is the love of God in Christ for us sinners. Well, around the same time, some of his friends end up running into this guy, Martin Stefan. Um, he was from Dresden. He's kind of a pastor there. And they're like, Walter, you got you to gotta listen to this guy because he's, he's got the gospel. All right. 
So Walther actually writes him a letter, because um, you know that's what you did at that time, didn't have email. Okay, so he writes him this letter, and um, to his surprise, um, Martin Stefan writes back, and he basically writes back this law gospel response. And and again for Walther, like this is the beginning of his first real clear understanding, and it's early for him. Um, of what the law is and its, its functions, right? We talk about the three uses of the law, the curve, the mirror, the guide, but, but also especially what is the gospel, right? Christ for us. Um, Martin Stefan himself is kind of an interesting person. He's sort of a middle class, um, came from an artisan family. He studies at Halle in Leipzig. Um, which were large centers of theological study. Those Halle itself was actually the place where all the missionaries came from. Um, they were responsible for the sending and the support of missionaries at that time. Once he's done there, he ends up serving a Bohemian congregation. Now, the Bohemians um, have sort of an interesting history with Lutheranism because they're, they're not exactly like ethnic, electoral, Saxon Germans, okay? Um, it was a little bit different, but they received the teaching of the Lutherans early on. And so you have a lot of these old sort of established Lutheran congregations among them. One of the things that's sort of important about that is because they're not like official electoral Saxony churches, they're almost like free churches today in Germany. So in Germany, you have the state church, right? The EKID. But then you have these free churches, which are like the ones that still have the gospel today, okay? Um, in some ways, they were understood to be non-geographic. So we, well, I'm assuming you belong to the Texas District of the Missouri Synod, right? Yeah, okay. But, but not all congregations in Texas belong to the Missouri Synod. There is one district, well, maybe I said that wrong, okay, not every congregation that's a part of the LCMS in Texas belongs to the Texas district. There is a non-geographic district in the Missouri Synod. Do you know what it is? It's the English district. Do you know where the English district comes from? It was all, it was the original English speaking congregations, right? So it used to be way back in the day, everybody spoke German, except for the congregations in the English district. Those were the ones that actually spoke English, which is why it's called the English district. And they're all over the United States, okay? Um, <coughs> in theory, it's actually possible to join the English district because you speak English today, all right? Um, but, but this is sort of the idea that there, some of these congregations are spread out. And Martin Stefan belongs to one of them. Because of that, he has certain privileges that the other pastors, like say an electoral Saxony, don't have. What are those privileges? Well, he was actually allowed to leave his own area and to preach among other Lutherans in other places, right? Because if it's kind of non-geographic, that's what you have to do. I know that sounds sort of weird for us, right? Like, why can't the pastors just go somewhere else and share the gospel? But at that time, it didn't really work that way. Like, if you had your congregation, I mean, you, you really didn't go and do things in other places, right? Um, but he's able to do this. Well, because he's kind of got, you know, this law gospel thing going on, right? He, he gets Jesus and, and nobody else is sort of doing that. 
he ends up having this huge following, right? So his congregation just like grows because people want to hear about Jesus. And word gets out about him. So people start asking, who is this Martin Stefan guy? Like, why is he doing all this stuff? Like, I want to hear him too. So he ends up traveling around teaching people about Christ. So um, actually, it was kind of interesting because they would have um, a service in, in kind of the local bohemian uh, language. Then they would have a German service in the afternoon. Then he would teach Bible studies at night. And then he would sort of travel around. But some of the stuff that he was doing, the other pastors didn't like. Because what, what's the natural result of this guy's church growing? Everybody else is kind of shrinking, and they don't like him, okay? They're, they're really jealous about it. <coughs> so they get so jealous, actually, that they try to get him in trouble. So he's got to teach, like, these Bible studies in the woods, right? He, literally, this, like, happens, right? They meet up in the woods, you know, because who's going to go out there looking for him? Um, but, but then he also kind of gets himself in trouble. He gets caught teaching this lady alone um, at one point, which was kind of like a really scandalous thing back then in those days. Um, that, that's also going to be a sign of future problems, right? which is going to also, I know this sounds, this already sounds really bad, right? Believe me, it's going to get really bad, right? This is our history. Um, yes, it's, it's really mind-blowing. Um, uh, <coughs> oh, man, this stuff is so fun. Um, yeah. He, he's actually at one point um, put on trial by the other pastors for his preaching of the gospel, right? And, and, and his defense is, look, all I'm doing is preaching the word of God, right? Like, like why are you so upset about this? Um, this also then um, causes him to begin thinking about going somewhere else because he is facing a certain amount of um, persecution um, in Germany. So he writes Walther in 1832, um, sort of about you know, the, the things about the persecution of true Christians, like people who really did want to believe the gospel. He writes to him about you know, how the real church oftentimes is the persecuted church. I mean, we see that even in our own country, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're at this time, we're teaching things that should just be common sense in our world. And the world just, can't stand some of the things that we just have to say, right? Like, like not even just about Jesus, okay? Just, just about like what it means to be human, you know, and, and those sorts of things. Um, well, as this all sort of going on, what happens with Walther is he begins to sort of confuse the message and the man. I mean, it's not hard to end up having a cult of personality, right? Um, and, and Walther begins to think that, like, this is the last guy with the gospel anywhere. That is not a good idea to have that, okay? Because then you turn into this thing called a cult, right? And, and that's actually what happens. They, they get really, really cultish. Um, Stefan, you know, kind of hears about all this stuff, um, that's going on in America, and he gets this idea that, you know, maybe we should go there. Around the same time, Walther himself um, begins to actually serve as a pastor. He had kind of gone through seminary at the time. He, he takes this call, and he sort of gets in trouble because he's doing what Martin Stefan's doing, right? He's sort of teaching about Jesus. A lot of the other people don't like it around him because they're rationalists, right? They're pietists. It's just not a good thing. Well, 
Stefan puts this plan together in, in the mid-1830s that they're going to go to the Americas and they're going to sort of like establish their own little colony there. And, and they call this thing the emigration group, right? Like they sort of name themselves. Um, and Walther, Walther's like, wow, this sounds really cool. We're going to go across the Atlantic and we're going to have our own places and, and we're going to be like the best, okay? Um, but then they start coming up with all these ideas about what are they actually going to do when they get there. So, so they, they form this idea that they're going to have this shared public treasury, right? So everybody's going to kind of contribute to this one pot, right? Well, that, that, that's going to lead to some problems, right? Because who controls that? You know, how is that money going to be spent? They actually also, at one point, before they go over, they define themselves as the true visible church on earth, right? <laughs> like, it's hilarious. Yeah, they're like, we're like the last Christians on the face of the planet. And they begin to sort of see themselves like as the only light, you know, in, in the world. Um, this is not a good way to start, okay? So what they do, um, basically, they, they load everybody up on these five ships, and they decide that they're actually going to sail for New Orleans. Most of the Lutherans came through the north, right, like in Virginia. And then what they would do is they would travel to Pennsylvania. The, the problem was is that Walther and Stefan and some others find out that the, the Lutherans who are in Pennsylvania really are basically pietists. And they're like, we don't want to go there and we don't want our people getting caught up in those sorts of things. So if we go through the South, right, they should have picked Galveston, but you know. Um, they're like, if we go through the South, we won't have to worry about this because there's not as many Lutherans there. Now there were Lutherans there, okay? Um, so they load up on these boats. <coughs> Before they go, um, they declare Stefan um, kind of like the supreme bishop of the community, all right? <laughs> so again, you know, they invest him with like, all this power, um, and you know the the people sort of see Martin Stefan as the unshakable pillar of Christianity, you know, because they again they had confused the message and the man, and they thought this is the guy, you know, that's going to lead us, you know, ultimately to Jesus um, and and so forth. There's five other pastors, one of whom is with Walt, Walter, that go with him, um, and in their minds, in, to a certain extent, and this isn't bad. They see themselves as transplanting the German church to the Americas, right? And, and that, I think, was okay, because really that's all they're doing. I mean, when you think, you know, I was looking at some of the missions you guys are supporting here, which is really, really great. You know, what are we doing in our time? All we're trying to do is bring the teaching of the gospel to some other people so that they can have it too. And, and that's what we do as the church, right? So it can go to another place. So... Not everything is, is bad with this. They also adopt a kind of Episcopal form of church governance. So an Episcopal form of church governance basically says, you know, you kind of have like an archbishop and he's sort of in charge of everybody else and kind of whatever he says goes. That is not our um, typical form of church polity anymore. Um, and there are reasons for that. Because if you invest somebody with all the power, what's going to happen? Okay, you know what's going to happen, right? Like, they're just going to wreck it. Um, because absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? It's the kind of cliche um, goes. And, and it's, it's going to be the end result of all this. Um, 
That, you know, so they basically declare you're sort of like the archbishop, the supreme guy, you're invested with this divine office, right? And you have all the power and we just trust you and, and so on and so forth. When they get there, things almost immediately go very, very badly. So as I mentioned formerly, Martin Stefan got caught in the woods one time alone with this lady. Now, it, nothing nefarious was necessarily going on, but it didn't look good. Okay, you can see where this is going, right? Yeah, well, okay, <laughs> right? I'm just saying, right? When he gets here, he decides he's gonna abandon his wife and his children. Oh boy. Yes, this is literally what happens. Okay, if your pastor says this, be very concerned, okay? <laughs> Right, you're gonna you're gonna Pastor Roberts is gonna be come back and you're gonna be like Pastor Taylor says if you leave your wife and children we should be very concerned. All right, so but but here's the thing, they they see him as like the last representative of Christianity, so they're like, well that must be okay. They actually say this right, like we'll just go along with this. Um, all right. And, and this is like the beginning of the end for him. I mean, they just barely got off the boat, right? And this is what um, begins to happen. The other thing is, is because he's like the archbishop and they had this communal treasury, he declares himself the owner of the treasury. So he starts spending all this money, right? <laughs> it's just so bad, you can't make it. Yes, this is the Missouri Synod, okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's so bad, right? This is why I love teaching this, because it's so funny, you know, when you actually think about, like, our history. It gets a lot better, okay? But it does start kind of as a cult, all right? Well, <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> Walter's brother, Walter's brother, like, catches on that Martin Stefan's spending all this money. So he goes, he goes to Walter, and he's like, what are we going to do? He's going to bankrupt us, right? Like, so they try and approach him. So... They, they sort of have this public dispute. And of course, everybody looks at Stefan as being like in all this authority. So Stefan basically says, look, you invested me with the authority. You cannot question what I'm doing. You simply need to obey me, right? And so Walter and his brother, they're like, oh, this is so not good. Like, what are we gonna do? Um, so uh, at the same time, they're also having problems because they have to get established. like. You can't just like go to a grocery store at this time, right? It doesn't quite work like that. Most of these are farmers that are with them. They've got, they actually have to like start planting crops and stuff. So they're like, look, there's this place called Missouri. And, and there's another place called St. Louis there. And we heard it actually looks a little bit like Germany. So we're going to go there. Well, um, they end up moving to Perry County, which is about 100 miles um, kind of south. Um, of St. Louis. But what was interesting about it is they had this great opportunity of living just outside St. Louis. But they're like, it doesn't look quite like where we came from. So we're gonna go to Perry County, but Perry County was actually a swamp, right? Like this is not a good idea, all right? So they moved to this place where it's actually gonna be very hard for them um, to, to basically farm. Well, if you don't grow your own food, what's gonna happen? You're going to starve. Yes, literally, this is actually what begins to happen there, right? Like, they are not successful uh, in being able to, like, raise crops and this kind of stuff. And while this is going on, 
This young woman goes to one of the other pastors, okay, and, and says, Martin, Stefan, and I, we had a thing, okay? <laughs> and she's all guilty about this, right? Okay. So now there's a lot of questions actually about whether this was private confession and absolution, right? Because what are you never supposed to do with private confession and absolution? You're never supposed to talk about it, right? Like, this is very specific. I mean, in the ordination vows and all this kind of stuff, nobody actually knows, did she go in private confession absolution or did she just talk with them about it, right? Because she wanted something to be done. I hope it's the latter, okay? But either way, the pastor's like, oh man, this is so not good, right? Like, what am I gonna do? So, um, the the... The pastor kind of sits on this for a while. Well, two other women come forward. <laughs> and they say, we also had a thing with Martin Stefan, right? Like, this is not good, is it? So um, this pastor goes to the other pastors and it's like, look, we, we got to do something. This Martin Stefan guy, like, this has gotten way out of hand. Now it's like really bad sin. I mean, this is going to go public, right? Like, this is so not good for the community of faith. So here's what they do. Um... They, they basically um, try to figure out which pastor is going to deal with this. And so they naturally do what all pastors would do. They choose the youngest guy, right? Because <laughs> he's the easiest guy, right? You can make that guy draw the short straw. Well, that happens to be Walther, right? So they're like, look, Walther, we're going to task you <laughs> with dealing with this problem for us, right? So you've got to go public with this. Um, so... Here's what he does. Walther tries to reach out to Stefan and be like, look, man, we got to sit down. We got to kind of talk about this. Well, how do you think Stefan's going to feel about that? Not good. He does not want to do this. So he's like, I'm not going to meet with you, right? Like, I don't have to do that. I'm the archbishop after all, right? Like, you have no authority over me. That's his response. So <laughs> what Walther does, he's like, look, guys, I may have drawn the short straw, right? but he's not going to listen to me. So we all got to go down together. Right, like as a group to talk to him. So they try to do that. Well, he still won't meet with them. So what they end up having to do is like draw up this formal declaration of charges against him. Now, the community is getting very nervous about all this. I mean, think about this. You've traveled thousands of miles. A lot of these people are like indentured servants. I mean, they've given up everything. They believe that you're like the one true church on earth. And then this happens almost as soon as they get there. All right. So um, basically in this document, what they argue, right, is that he does not have authority, you know, over the word of God, right? That, that if you are, and, and of course this is true, right? Like if you're sinning, regardless of what position that you're in, you're guilty of that sin, right? And it's got to be dealt with, whether you've been invested with all this power and so on and so forth. Because of that, they draw the conclusion, you know, that he's essentially forfeited his rights and his privilege as a pastor in the church. And they, they label him a reprobate, right? Like just in this document, this is what they say. Um, it gets so bad that Stefan himself actually is kind of forced to move out of the community. And he gets another pastorate in Illinois, Right, so he essentially leaves the community, goes off, finds this other congregation that doesn't have a pastor, which was kind of a common thing because getting pastors at that time was really hard. Um, and he's there. Well, the problem is he's jumped ship and this community is now a disaster because who's in charge? 
What do they do with all this? And not only that, but everybody looks on the other pastors with suspicion now, right? Like, are you guys doing this thing too? Like, are people going to come out and say, like, I had a thing with Walter, right? Like, so it's just really bad. This guy, Vies, um, he ends up arguing that the clergy really aren't in charge of the church at all, right? And so he sort of, like, tries to begin to single-handedly take over the community. Um, and, and he sort of argues that the congregations itself, they have all the power. They can judge their pastors. They can throw them out, right? They can sort of do whatever they want. Yeah. I'm just wondering, do you have a sense about how many people are in this entire community here that have settled? I just wonder how many people we're talking about. Oh, well, I think it's like 700. Okay. Yeah, I, which, you know, that doesn't sound like a lot, maybe. Yeah, but... but but, you know, that was like a healthy group of immigrants coming over, you know, at that time. Um, you know, it's not like you just, it's not like you just jump in the plane and fly across the Atlantic, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> you're leaving everything behind and, and coming over. So what, what Vies convinces the congregations to do is to fire all the pastors, right? So he's like, we're going to take over everything. We're kicking you out, right? Like, you're on your own. We don't want anything to do with you. This goes on for two years. These congregations have no pastors. The pastors are just kind of wandering around like, what do we do? You know, I, it's a total disaster. Well, because they were living in Perry County, the farming problem continues for several seasons. And by the time 1840 rolls around, like the community is facing severe famine. Like people are dying. The treasury is empty. I mean, it feels like, God has totally judged them. You know, this group that thought they were representative of the church, but they really weren't. Um, all right, so a lot of the people begin <coughs> to talk about leaving. Vies himself decides that this is an apostate church, right? An apostate group of people. He actually goes back to Germany, right? So the guy who kicked out all the pastors, the guy who got rid of Stefan, he's gone, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must have actually felt like to live during this event, okay? And these are our forebears. All right, um, I know, isn't that crazy? Um, all right, this guy Marbach ends up taking Vies' place, so, so he's also a lay person. And he's like, man, this is really, really bad. So him and Walther get together and they're like, look, what we gotta do is we gotta have a public debate about how this community is actually going to work, about what the church actually is. Like, they, they, they're, they're like, we have to address the actual problems that are facing us. So they have this thing called the Altenburg Debate. This is in April 1841. And the, the goal is to settle the disputes. And in some ways, Marbach, you know, what he's going to do is sort of argue the position of the congregations, right? Like, we have the power to just throw you out, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And Walther's sort of going to argue the part of the clergy. But I, I think the goal in many ways is kind of to help bring unification and, and soundness back into the word of God, okay? Um, in preparation for this and kind of out of this, one of the things that happens is Walther writes a series of theses. And this is, he'll become famous for doing this about what constitutes the church. And, and this is where the real Lutheranism begins to come forward. So he, he basically writes, look, our forebears, right, Martin, Stefan, and all these guys, and probably himself included, had this idea that they were the one true church on earth. And Walther writes that just wasn't true, 
right? That, that the true church on earth is the sum total of all believers who trust in Christ and who will have eternal life. Um, he talked about how the Holy Spirit doesn't work through, you know, the charisma of a leader, right? But rather works through word and sacrament. Okay, so, you know, and, and a lot of this he had learned from Luther in his readings when he had all this depression. You know, I don't think Walther could have foreseen how God was actually going to use that to help him, but he's leaning on all this understanding of what's going on. He also talks about how the church in one sense is invisible, right? That, that you can't just see the visible, you know, body of Christ, the, the invisible body of Christ on earth. I mean, God sees that, right? But there is a sense in which believers and unbelievers, you know, they're going to gather together around the church. <clears throat> um, he also talked about how the fact that the true church isn't defined by a man. It's defined by proper preaching and the administration of the sacraments. Okay, so you, now you can kind of see where all this is sort of coming in um, and so forth. And, and Walther, at the end of this, basically answers the question, are we still the true church? And the answer is yes, as long as we are founded on Christ with a faith that has been created and sustained through the word and the sacrament, even though they've had all the scandalous stuff happened, okay? Like, and it was really scandalous. Um, they also address, actually, the issue of church polity. <laughs> and they're like, look, we don't have to have an Episcopal form of church polity, right? That, that we can adopt any kind of polity that is suitable for the preaching, teaching, and administration of the sacraments because Jesus doesn't demand any kind of church organization. He actually doesn't, right? It's not even in the New Testament, um, all right, so this is very, very helpful for them, right? And out of this then, um, Walther is sort of able to help the other pastors get called back into their churches. Um, and they, they also begin to address the issue, how are we going to make sure this doesn't happen again? That's when they form Concordia College. That's part of addressing this issue so they can properly teach the next set of people so that they won't have this issue again. That's actually the beginning of like the Concordia University system and, and the seminary system. Now it's a little bit longer, the history is longer than that. I'm not gonna have time to get into it. And next time I tell them, I'm gonna totally forget where we were. <clears throat> but um, the school actually begins in um, 1839 and it's, it's for young people. They're like five to 15 is kind of the age group that they're beginning to train up. They want the young people to be taught properly, right? This is why we spend time with our youth. You know, it's sort of funny, you're thinking about doing this, this campground thing in the summer, but it is so important that we teach the young people of the church, right? Because we don't want them to fall into all kinds of mistakes, right? Not just false teaching from the world, but problems in the church, right? And the best way to do that is to teach them the word of God, right? And we wanna spend time doing that. And they recognize that early on, right? That, like that's one of the goals of the synod when it's first formed, right? Is, edu is education, right? Education in our, in our parishes and so on and so forth. All right, that's like my little soapbox. Um, but I got bigger soapboxes too, but that's okay. We'll save this for another day. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, okay? So in 1843, the, the Concordia College also begins to kind of serve as a seminary. Right, and we'll not talk about the formation of the seminaries, which is too bad because it's actually really interesting. But in 1850, it basically moves to St. Louis. Okay, this will kind of become the St. Louis Seminary um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
around the same time, Luther begins to publish this thing called Der Lutheraner, which was a, a magazine, if you will, just called The Lutheran. This is like, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is what becomes eventually The Lutheran Witness, right? I think they're actually two different publications, but it may just be a name change. I, I, I didn't have a chance to kind of look that up. I used to know, but it's escaped me, um, but that's okay. So basically it's, it's literature <clears throat> for the lay people in these congregations that answers the question, what does it actually mean to be Lutheran? And that's an important question for us to ask too, right? Like, like what does it mean to be Lutheran? What does it mean to be Christian? Um, we, these are things that we really have to wrestle with now especially in our day and age, right? Because one of the things that you want to be careful of, the world wants to define who we are. And it wants to define like what our teaching is and why we teach the things that we do. And they, they want to kind of redefine that to a certain extent. We don't want that to happen. We want the word of God to actually define who we are and, and what we believe, okay? And so a long part of our history has been the ongoing knowledge and education of our people so that they may know, rightly know Christ, okay? Um, <clears throat> out of this also comes the first convention known as the Constitutional Convention. This meets from 1845 to 1846 in Cleveland, St. Louis, and Fort Wayne. In April, eight, ugh, April 26, 1847, the Missouri Synod is officially formed. Now, it's kind of interesting, right, because while on the one hand, <clears throat> we begin as a cult, right, with all sorts of heinous stuff, that was actually really important for us. Like, God actually used that. Because out of this horrible experience, they were forced to define themselves properly. And they were forced to have to ask really, really difficult questions and give good answers. It is still why our church body does this today. You know, we get together and we, we tend to do theology, right? We tend to ask the hard questions. We also tend to be a church body that is focused a lot on teaching, a lot on the formation of the people of God. And if it hadn't been for all that, like, scandalous stuff, they might not have had that like intensity, but that has been a great blessing to us. So even though, you know, sometimes it all gets turned upside down, the Lord will still use these for the benefit of his church, okay? Out of the Constitutional Convention, um, basically they define the Synod in these ways. Um, they want to make sure that there is a unity of confession of faith among the congregations, right? They all should be saying the same thing, and that same thing should be coming straight out of the Word of God. Um, they talk about how each congregation, um, to a certain extent, though, has a little bit of independence, right? So a neighboring congregation can't come to you and say, this is what you're going to do. But... It is true that we should all be teaching the same thing, right? So, you know, the congregation down the road, they might not go to the campground this summer or something like that. But at the same time, hopefully if you go to that congregation, they're at least going to be teaching the same faith, okay? Um, the other thing that they talk about is the synod exists to also train pastors. That's a really important thing. You want to be able to continue to get pastors. And I know that this is something we can kind of take for granted, but we shouldn't. Getting pastors is not always an easy thing. I mean, 
I get that we have two seminaries, right? You know, th- there's a lot of pastors out there, but you, you look around at like Christianity in the world. It is not simple for a lot of Christians to get pastors into their congregations. Um, and because this has been a huge part of our life, not only do we supply our own parishes, but we also, as you guys know, you supply other uh, people around the world, other, than, other um, sister church bodies and so forth. The other thing that they wanted to do, uh, and if you look at the original constitution, I'm going to stop here because I know I'm going into the donut time and I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, uh, they, they wanted to exist for the publishing of hymnals and other resources, which is why we still do this. This ends up being the basis for Concordia Publishing House because they didn't want to have to rely on other people for their theological resources, and we shouldn't either. Um, that's why we spend so much time producing really, really good resources um, that deal with all kinds of issues, right, and, and so on and so forth. The last thing that the Synod was organized for was mission activity. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't remember this, but the early Missouri Synod was very concerned about sharing the gospel with other peoples. So like some of the early work was done with the American Indians. Another group that they actually worked very hard on was um, slaves. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but the early Lutherans in the South, you know, they couldn't undo all this, but they actually had a lot of mission endeavors to the slaves. And it, it sounds sort of weird, but one of the things that they really wanted to do is teach them German. So they had this whole like mission endeavor to teach the slaves German so that they could learn theology. Because the only way at this time that they know how to communicate theology is in German. They don't don't really know English, right? Um, And there were successes and failures in the midst of that, but that's one of the main reasons that the Synod was actually formed, was to try to bring the gospel um, to other peoples, right? And those three things are our primary purposes today. Right, the training of pastors, the creating of good resources, and bringing the gospel to the world. So that's like the basic history of the early um, synod. There's all kinds of other really funny stuff uh, that sort of happens after that, and someday we'll talk about those things too. Um, but we are no longer a cult. Okay, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I actually had one of my kids come to me this last week. I don't know, it was like maybe it was two weeks ago, and and he, he just came to me, and I could tell he was sort of nervous, and I was kind of like, "What did you do?" Right. <laughs> That's the first thing that's going to my mind. Like, what did you break? Right. Like, this is sort of, God gives us children so that we learn not to treasure stuff. Okay. This is true. Like, I'm just dead serious. But when he looks at me, he goes, Dad, are we a cult? <laughs> and the first thing that goes through my mind, I'm like, okay, wait a second. Where did you learn this? Right. Like, like no, son, we are not a cult, but we used to be. Right? <laughs> okay. All right. Let it, we'll just pray quick. Uh, we'll have our fellowship time here and prepare for worship. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day, for the joy of being able to gather together. We give you thanks uh, for all the saints here at Emmanuel, for um, the, the blessing that they have in uh, receiving the word of God. Uh, we're thankful for Pastor Otmers and the, the joy that he brings to this congregation, also the work uh, that they are doing, all the endeavors that they support for uh, the advancement of your kingdom. Oh Lord, bless us uh, as we continue to worship you always. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.
Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll um, yeah. I gotta look at this because I don't. That's an opportunity I don't want to pass by. I mean, especially if this. I mean, I think the science teacher will be interested. Um, to, to be fair, you know, Mr. Merritt. Sometimes he's just very, very busy. I mean, he. But he should have followed up with you. To tell you the truth. But anyways, I'll reach out and okay. and get back in touch with okay. you. Okay. Okay. Good. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks See you. Yeah, yeah. It's good to be here. It's always fun. Have a great time. <laughs> you, well, just like Pastor, though, he, you spark up things. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where'd you go to Sonner? Fort Wayne. Okay. Yeah, I was there actually around the same time Pastor Omris was there. We go way back. Okay, so. okay. Yep. Was uh, Dr. Fikincher there? Yeah, he was still oh, there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. He was our pastor once. When we oh, were, yeah. When we were at Peace Garland. Yeah, sure. Yep. We, uh, we lived in St. Louis for three years. Okay. 15 years ago. Yeah. So we knew several of the professors from... Oh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They were, they were members at our church we went to. Okay, sure. So, yep. A couple of times we had them for uh, Bible class. Oh, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. Really interesting. And it was very reassuring <laughs> that how committed and strong they were. Yeah, and, that... And it's just like, no... <laughs> Yes, and we have to stay that way. I mean, it's really important. So, yep. Very reassuring. All right, y'all have a great day. Oh, is that Jesus in there? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> oh, yep, thanks. Thank you, sir. All right.